And thank you, worship team. And uh, welcome to Crossway Chapel. Uh, my name is Mike Shuffle, and I've been privileged to be able to be part of Crossway now for just over 10 years and have had the opportunity to be able to serve in a variety of ways throughout those 10 years and certainly uh, is a great privilege uh, to be here with you this morning uh, and be able to open God's word with you. And so we're going to be in Acts 6, chapter 6. And if you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bibles in front of you. And that page number is 859 on the pew Bible uh, for uh, anybody looking for Acts 6. And so We've been studying the book of Acts since uh, the start of the new year, and we just came to the end of chapter 5, and here we are, we've seen basically a consistent progression, right, of the early church, where there has been just consistent growth, uh, where back in chapter 2 at Pentecost, the church's birth, 3,000 believers come to faith. Very shortly after that, another 2,000 um, join, and then in Acts 5 uh, tells us many more were then added to the church. And so it is estimated at this time where we are here in Acts 6 that the church was upwards of 15 to 20,000 believers, uh, which is pretty remarkable. And so the church is thriving, it's growing. God is advancing his kingdom, therefore it comes at no surprise, right? Difficulty comes. Satan would love nothing more than to undermine uh, the very thing that is taking place. And so we saw that in the example of Ananias and Sapphira two weeks ago uh, in chapter 5. There was an inner corruption, uh, a hypocrisy that kind of had um, presented itself and... Uh, did that work? <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, we already referenced it, but chapter 5, 14 says, more than ever believers were added to the Lord, or more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Also, tried to quiet the church through persecution, right? There was persecution that had already now come against the church, and we see in chapter 5, verse 41, the apostles who had just been beaten, right? This is their response. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Persecution, only advancing the name of Jesus, right? And so now, here we are uh, in Acts 6, and we have a different kind of problem or difficulty that has come uh, before the church. And so let's read. We're going to read Acts 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows...
The apostles were devoted to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so it is in that order uh, we'll begin this morning. So let's pray. Well, God, we thank you for the opportunity to be here and gathered together this morning. Um, we know that your word is living and active, and so I pray this morning that this uh, story in Acts 6 would not merely just be a history lesson on uh, the early church, but that you would use it for our good, that you would use it to grow us both individually as well as collectively as a church, and that, God, you would be made much of this morning um, through that. And so you are an amazing and good God. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So we see here, we, got, we have a new problem, right? A problem from within, a potential threat to the growth of the early church. And I think it's important that we first look at in verse one, the opening lines of verse one. It says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. So as we have seen already, the church was growing, and here's what we know about the early church growth. It was a gospel-centered growth. And it was a direct result of passionate gospel preaching and compassionate ministry. Tony Morita, a pastor in Raleigh, uh, in his commentary on Acts, uh, had this to say. There were no gimmicks behind it. The Apostles weren't offering watered-down sermons. They weren't handing out gift bags. Yet the Lord blessed the church with a multitude of converts. This reminds us that while today's congregations can expand a crowd in a variety of ways, a church is built only through people embracing the gospel. So we as a church, right, we must keep the gospel primary. The last verse in chapter 5 says this, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Right? So we see the example in the apostles. Every day, right, they were committed to embracing the gospel, keeping the gospel central. So, for us, uh, members of Crossway Chapel of Wilmington, if you're here this morning, I just want to stop, I think, and just praise God for the fact that we here at Crossway, we are not looking to expand a crowd, right? We are looking to be, build a church that is centered on the gospel. And by God's grace, um, God has uh, gifted us and provided for us Right, pastors who are committed to passionate gospel preaching, right, and compassionate ministry amongst 
our body. And I would say for the people of Crossway, right, one, it's a great thing that we've seen growth, right, over the course of these years, and it's growth by the people of this church committed, right, to the gospel and keeping the gospel primary. And just as you hear it in Luke, the author of Acts, he rejoices in this, right? If there is growth and it's gospel-centered growth, we should celebrate that, right? But at the same time, we should not be satisfied, right? But we should be eager, we should long, right, to want more and more people reached here in this city, right, and throughout the world. And I don't know about you, but just personally for me, that's just been a, a real encouragement since the new year and us being in Acts. Uh, Acts by no means is a perfect church. Uh, is there, there's plenty of issues uh, there, but just, just so encouraged and just, to be honest, just kind of fired up to see how in which God is working and showing up here. And Matt mentioned it preaching a couple of weeks ago, right? Often, sometimes we can get caught just praising what God has done in the past, but really kind of challenge us to want more of it right here in the present, right? We should long to see more converts. We should see people embracing the gospel, right? And that ultimately those that are lost here in this community might come to know Christ. And so let's celebrate gospel-centered growth, right? Let's want more of it. But then, no, Luke, his primary uh, job was not just documenting the growth of the Christian movement, right, but really to show us what exactly was happening and how just the various threats and obstacles that they faced, how they were overcome. And that is very much what this passage of Scripture is about. And they were committed, right, the early church, to compassionate ministry. Every need was being Every need of every believer was being cared for. We saw back in Acts 4, they had a system in place for this. 34 through 35 says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. It's amazing, right? Those, but they were brought before the 12 apostles and they were overseeing the distribution. Well, here we are in six, we got a problem. The system is no longer working, right? As we continue to read in verse one, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. I think we can know with growth, right, we can expect blessing, but with growth, we can also expect problems. Um, and not only that, though, problems present opportunities, right, and opportunities for uh, growth. And so here, the first threat to the early church, uh, or the first threat here, is the conflict between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. And so if you're like me, as I'm reading this, First question, who, who were the Hellenists? Uh, trying to better understand exactly what was going on at this time. And so the Hellenists 
Specifically, the widows were being neglected in this distribution. And Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, had a large minority of these Hellenistic or what better known Greek-speaking Jews, Jews who, though they spoke no Hebrew, had once lived abroad, had now found themselves moving back into the city of Jerusalem. And then here we also have the Hebrew Jews who are the native um, Aramaic-speaking Jews. And there was a clear distinction, right? There was a clear distinction between origin and language, but not only that, there was a clear, clear distinction in culture. The Hellenists not only spoke Greek, but they thought and they behaved like Greeks. And in many ways, they were discriminated against by the natives, and the Hebrew Jews deeply, or were discriminated against by the natives, the Hebrew Jews, and they were, which were deeply immersed in Hebrew culture. So here comes Pentecost, right? All these believers come into the church, well, believers from both Greek-speaking Jews as well as the Hebrew-speaking Jews, and while now they have become one in Christ, while one in Christ, there was still those same cultural tensions and differences, right, that was very much present. And specifically here, we see it with the Greek-speaking widows. And so whether the matter of neglect was actual, right, or um, just how it was imagined, regardless, they felt that they were being shorted in the distribution. And so in response, what did they do? They complained, right? There was a complaint uh, that was made on their behalf. And so remember the system they had back in place. The apostles were left in charge of this distribution. Well, now the church has grown to upwards of 20,000 people, and here there's 12 apostles, right? And keep in mind, at this time, there was no take them a meal or meal train type of sign up that we get to enjoy now when we're sharing food with those uh, in the body, right? They uh, were likely uh, overwhelmed and not able to keep up. But in the matter of neglect with these widows, I think it's important to recognize and see the difference, that there is a difference in sin and human limitation and kind of camp out there for a moment and look at both. Um, personally, as I, as I read through this, I think it's probably more likely, right, for the apostles that much of this neglect was due to their limitations of resources, their limitation of time, location uh, that led to this neglect. But we come up against this Today, right, uh, there are situations where we have legitimate complaints or whether we may be justifiably offended by something that is taking place or not taking place uh, within the church. And I think it's just important to note that failure within the church is not always a result of sin, and that we can still control, right, our response to those situations. There's a right way, there's a correct posture, right, and way in which we're responding. Certainly it's not to go and complain and, 
and gossip to others, right? There's an appropriate way in which we approach this, right? But I think it's just important for us to recognize, let's have realistic expectations, right? <laughs> there's gonna be times where there's gonna be failures, there's gonna be things that um, we can justifiably complain about, right? But also be quick to really show grace to one another in those moments but have confidence at the same time that we know that Jesus is building his church in spite of our limitations, our imperfections. Uh, so looking at that, I think it's also healthy for us to stop and look at the fact of this kind of sinful neglect and ask ourselves, I think, a really important question because I believe we all have the inclination right, to neglect others. So the question for us to ask just here in this moment is, is there anything in our church family or our life personally that would cause us to be neglectful? Is there anything in our church family or our life personally that would cause us to be neglectful, whether it be political or COVID-related, whether it's ethnicity, whether it's language barrier, such as the example here, whether it's personality. Um, I think it's just a good question for us just to evaluate in our own hearts, right? Because I know uh, if I'm to be honest with you here this morning, right, I'm inclined to neglect people. I'm inclined to neglect specific things that God is calling me to. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have balance in our life because there are times where you are just stretched to the point that there's just, you can't keep up with everything, right? But I, I know I'm often wanting to excuse just limited when the reality is these are things that I need to deal with in my own heart, right? And, and uh, go and run to these things that are being neglected. So let's remember there's a difference between sin and human limitation. Let's have realistic expectations of one another and let's just be quick to show grace to one another. But arguably the bigger threat here, right? There was the threat of the neglect to the Hellenistic widows. The larger threat here is actually the response to this initial problem. If the, if the first problem was solved the wrong way, they could have been incredibly detrimental, right, to the growth of this church. Could have completely undermined the very thing that was causing this church growth uh, to go away. And we see this in verse two. The response of the apostles says, and the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. They involved and summoned the people, and then they said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So for them to respond this way, right, I believe it's clear there was some suggestion, right, a well-meaning suggestion that probably came up that said it would in fact be good if the apostles gave more hands-on time to serve and deal with this problem of the neglected widows. However, this would have been incredibly 
tempting, I believe, for the apostles. Because if you think about it, no one wants to consider themselves above serving in this way. Uh, they, even Jesus would have been a, an example, right, where people might have pointed, hey, look, even Jesus, he served, he washed the feet of his own disciples, right? It would have been incredibly tempting for them to, to want to respond there, but knowing that very much this task was essential, but to preoccupy the apostles, right, with the social administration, not their calling, and instead neglecting their God-given responsibilities to pray and to preach, ultimately this would have been a major mistake uh, for the apostles and ultimately undermine the very thing that was growing his church. So in response, they refused right, to assign blame and made the people part of the solution. And so let's read here, see the solution. They gathered the people in verse two. Their response of, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And so they say, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So they instruct the church to appoint these seven men. And then verse four, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They prioritized and they protected, right, their biblical calling to devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And verse five, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. So we get a new system in place, right? new system of seven, these seven to oversee, the widows are being cared for, and ultimately the ministry of the word, right, is not forsaken. It's a new kind of teamwork, right, within the body of Christ. And I think it's an interesting point to note as to who they selected, okay? Um, given those distinctions amongst the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebrew Jews, right, all seven of these men all had Greek names. So whether or not all seven were in fact Hellenistic Jews, they picked, right, and selected those that were most suited for the task, those that were closest to the issue for the sake of unity within the body. And so we look at this passage and we wonder, okay, is this the origin of what we understand as deacons, because oftentimes this passage is kind of referenced in, in regards to the origin of deacons within the church. Well, there's no mention of deacons specifically in these seven verses, but if you understand in verse two where they said to serve tables, the word serve in this passage is actually translated in the same word that we get the word deacon from. So they were literally to deacon tables, right? In verse six, we see kind of a formal laying of hands where they laid hands, perhaps not ordaining them to an official office yet at this point, but it's clear, right? They were commissioned to a specific 
task, a specific role within the church to go and serve tables and to go and take care of this problem of distribution so that all are being cared for. And what we understand of deacons is laid out a little more detail in First Timothy, but as understanding what deacons are and their role, one, we know they are the chief servants of the church. They are the chief servants within the church. They are also, their deacons are to free up, right, the pastors to handle the administrative, managerial type things to be able to serve in a way that would free up the church's pastors. And ultimately to serve and to promote unity within the church through their service. So Christians should value a rightly ordered church. Why? We see it right here. Church order preserves, or biblical order preserves church unity. There was a unity that was maintained within the church. The seven, they were found consistently, right, living out these three qualifications that were listed in um, verse three. Good repute, right? Good, ultimately good reputation. They were found praiseworthy. They were found respected amongst their uh, fellowship. Secondly, they were full of the Spirit. They were ultimately dependent upon the, the Spirit's leading in their life, right? A consistent influence by the Spirit in, what, in the way in which they were living their life. And then ultimately, they were full of wisdom. Wisdom that flows from a union with Christ. To know Christ and to walk with him, right? The ability to know truth and then to have the ability to apply it practically. So I think it's helpful for us that, to see that this was found amongst the body. These men were found usable in a moment of need. They were already in a lot of ways deaconing, so to speak. So you just have to wonder for a moment for us here at Crossway, right? If a need arise within Crossway, which we have plenty of those and will, right? Is this what would be found amongst our own church body? I would like to think so. But one might say, well, I'm not really looking to be in some formal role uh, or looking to be a deacon or any formal position within the church. But I think we would all agree this morning, right, that all of us should aim for this to be said of each one of us, right? Good repute, full of the spirit, full of wisdom. In a way, every believer should aim to be deacon qualified. And when it comes to our service, right? As church members, we should be a people, right, who say, this is where I serve, not this is where I come to hear great sermons being preached on Sundays, right? To really embrace the mindset and the attitude of this is where I serve. And I thought of an example of uh, 
a family in our church. Just they're fairly new to Crossway. Uh, been been part of Crossway now for a number of months and been involved in our life group, and that's uh, Travis and Amber Green. And the first night we met them, they came to our life group, and we were talking, and they were talking about how they found Crossway. And I was like, well, tell me kind of your heart behind, like, why ultimately you guys are choosing to, to make this their, your home. And along with a couple of other things, they made it very clear. They're like, we're just eager to serve. We, we see the need to be committed to a local church, and we want to serve. It's a great example, but should it not be said, right, of, of every single one of us. And so as we got this solution to the problem, okay, ultimately we don't see some big church fight, right? We don't see some division that comes into the church. We see the broader heart of God's people. We see a gathering where the truth of God's word, right, leads the group and the love of God soothes the disagreement and there ultimately was Spirit-filled unity. Verse five, and the whole gathering was pleased. The leaders, they made an adjustment, right? There was a change, there was a new system put in place. They shared the ministry, they delegated, right? And ultimately the body was pleased with change. This is absolutely amazing, right? There, the threat had come, the, the witness of the church, right, was at stake, and ultimately they came out of this thing unified. And while the complaint was actually justified, you see here that they were not just lobbying complaints, but they were active participants in the gathering. And kind of got me thinking, uh, for some of y'all, uh, many of you know me, uh, but some of you don't. I'm the athletic director at Coastal Christian High School here in town, and I have the uh, privilege to be able to coach uh, two sports there as well, coach boys soccer and, and girls basketball. And we're about building great teams, right? But that's taking a whole bunch of individuals trying to come become one kind of like uh, our, our church, right? Part of that is there are inevitable problems that arise uh, throughout the season. And something that's just been a part of our culture over the years, right, is when those problems come, okay, and oftentimes players just want to kind of lobby up the complaint. They want to just acknowledge the problem and then look for you to do something about it. And that's where, okay, that's the easy part, right? We can all, it's easy to call out the problem, right? But it's another thing to really see yourself as part of the solution, right? And so something we always look at our players and just say, hey, go be part of the solution. Okay, problems, we know it's coming, right? Let's go be part of the solution. Let's come out of this thing better, stronger, together. And I think a lot of that could apply for us as a church body, right? Problems will arise. <laughs> Legitimate complaints will come, right? But just to, as members of this church, okay, the very thing that we are aiming to do, being 
wanting to be found deacon qualified, wanting to be part of the solution. If we're not careful, right, we're just throwing out complaints, right, and ultimately adding on to the plate of the very ones that we want to free up. Why? So they can give us exactly what we need, devoting to, devoted to prayer and ultimately to the ministry of the word, right, which is vital for us as a church body. So just encourage you in that, and let's see problems, right, as opportunities for growth for us, and know that as a church, right, there's not always going to be a clear answer to every dilemma, right? And just as we saw in this example, the leaders, they handled this decision in a way, ultimately, that expressed love for God, right, and for the people, which by God's grace, I believe we have pastors that do the same, and ultimately, this, thing, this pleased the whole company. And so know that, the, that see, there are seasons, right, within our church where there may be change, right, or whatever it may be, ultimately for the good and the advancement of the kingdom. And that is important that we maintain unity, right, amongst our church body. Knowing that unity reflects Christ, right, to our world. It protects our witness but now to see the end result of this unified church, this solving of a problem, we see it right here in verse seven. So look at, look at verse seven with me. These are the evangelistic consequences to the church's solution. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So what do we have? Word of God increased, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. Even so, or more so, now even the priests, some of the priests have become obedient to the faith. Yes, the same priests. As we look back in chapter four, we've heard throughout these first five chapters Right, four verse one says, and as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. <laughs> this is huge, right? These same priests who hated these apostles, right, who hated the name of Jesus, right, who once objected, now have found, been found obedient to the faith. So I just want to encourage you, the, the end result here of chapter 6, the fiercest enemies of the gospel can be saved. Christ's most heated enemies now believe. And may he do it again now through this church, as well as every other gospel preaching church in this community, as well as throughout the world. Amen? So stop and think for a moment. Uh, I know as a life group, we find ourselves almost every week in this same situation. Like, all right, we're feeling the call. Be bold, right? Be courageous. The gospel has the power to save even these priests. 
but yet we find ourselves, right, we either are afraid or we just think, whether it be our neighbor or a family member or a coworker, they, they maybe uh, appear to be hostile or just opposed or just to the point that you just think there's just no way. They are too, too far gone, right? My guess is you compare them to <laughs> the example of the priest and what they were doing in these first five chapters is probably going to fall pretty short, right? And so what that should do, it should just give us great confidence, right? It should encourage us, right? We should be fired up to go be on mission knowing this, that we should seek the salvation of everyone because why? The gospel can penetrate the hardest of hearts. And so if you're here this morning and hearing this example, right, of the priests and how the gospel has the power to change even the fiercest enemies. The reality is that the miracle of the priests, it can be said of every single one of us here in this room when it comes to our salvation. Something you've heard probably before at Crossway said that the gospel is for all who are far off, right? And all are far off. We are all far off. This is not just an example of the extreme enemies because we are all enemies. And if you are here this morning, right, and you've yet to surrender your life to Jesus, then just as the priest or this incredible example of the grace of God, you can go be that same example today, confessing your sin, acknowledging your need for a savior, ultimately becoming obedient to the faith. And for believers, we should play as a team. If you are a Christian here this morning, you are a player. You are not a fan. Because what do fans do? They complain. <laughs> they complain. Right? Yelling at officials for missed calls all game long. Right? Talking about coach has no idea what he's doing. He ain't got a clue of what he's doing. What are they, why are they running this? They should be doing something different. Right? Shoots March Madness right now. You just look at all the fans, like all their teams, right? <laughs> they also yell at the players because they don't have their head in the game or they're not playing as hard as they think they should be playing, right? Fans, they complain, and they complain with no solution in mind. They're, they're removed from it, right? But players, players make plays, Right, players get up after it, right? They go to work. They go to practice and they work their butt off building their skill set. Why? So that they're able to go and execute in the game. That's what I love about March Madness, not all the fandom and all the stuff around it. I just love watching kids make plays in the biggest, most pressure moments of their entire life, right? And so for us, if we are players as believers, right, as Christians, then what should that look like? We need to be devoted to 
prayer. We need to be devoted to time in God's word where we are studying, right? We are preparing. Ultimately, we're seeking counsel, seeking godly wisdom from those around us. Ultimately, we are seeking to walk full of the spirit, right? Full of wisdom so that we can go and ultimately be used by God. So let's play as a team. See yourself not as a fan, but a player, right? You are in the game. And let's pray that we as a church will effectively care for the people and the needs of the people and that we will be faithful in proclaiming this good news of the gospel. And through it all, we remember that it is Jesus who is building his church and we are wonderfully, wonderfully privileged to be a part of it. Let's pray. God, we just want to thank you for the truth of your word, God. I pray that those here, if they do not know you, that they would not waste another hour because the consequences are eternal. God, we praise you for the fact that, God, in your goodness, in your grace, right, you came to save those who were lost. And God, now for those who have, are believers, are members here of this church, we see that we play, would play as a team and that we are players, not fans, and that we would build one heck of a team here at Crossway. Ultimately, not for any of our own glory or for our name, but that ultimately your name would go forward and that ultimately many might come to know you. So would we want more of that? We love you, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.